Hello, and welcome to PW's LitCast, a podcast from Publishers Weekly. In each episode, we speak with innovative authors. I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly. Today, I'm speaking with Chuck Gunderson, who is the author of the two-volume set, Some Fun Tonight, which is published by Hal Leonard, the sponsor of today's podcast. Chuck, really nice to talk with you. It's great to be on. Thanks so much for inviting me. So the, uh, the subtitle is The Backstage Story of How the Beatles Rocked America, the Historic Tours of 1964 to 1966. So you've got this two-volume set that covers the years 1964, which is when the Beatles first came to the U.S., to 1966, which is the year of their last live concert, and this is an anniversary. But let's start with 1964. Where did the Beatles perform? And give us a context as to what was... What was it like at those concerts and, and for the Beatles in general? Well, I think we have to first take it back to early February of 1964 when the Beatles first came to America and were invited to perform on the Ed Sullivan Show. They did three consecutive Sunday nights. That first Sunday on February 9th, there was 73 million people tuning into that uh, broadcast. One in four television sets were tuned to that. Mm -hmm. So it kind of uh, primed the pump, so to speak, and uh, proved to Brian Epstein, their manager, that they could come back and be successful. So uh, immediately after the Sullivan shows, he met with a man by the name of Norman Weiss, who ran, he was vice president of General Artists Corporation, a local New York talent agency. And together they crafted this tour in August that was just amazing. I mean, the Beatles did 32 shows in 33 days. They crisscrossed all over North America, including Canada, with shows in Vancouver, Montreal, Toronto. And uh, they made a ton of money doing it. So it was uh, quite, a, quite an interesting and uh, uh, amazing time on that first tour. So we often think of Shea Stadium. Where, where in the tour did that fall? That was actually in 1965 uh. Uh, when they came back for the second time. And it was that point where uh, their manager, Brian Epstein, uh, realized that he could put fans into stadiums. They had actually played three stadiums in 1964, and actually Shea Stadium was offered to Brian, but he passed. Uh, he did a really intelligent thing uh, in the days of rock managers when they kind of want to just take everything from their artists. Brian really cared about the Beatles and their success. And uh, during that first tour, he was offered huge stadiums all over, including, uh, like I said, Shea Stadium and Tiger Stadium and, and even the Los Angeles Coliseum that held 80,000 people. But to Brian's credit, he chose small venues, uh, arenas, coliseums, amphitheaters that held anywhere from 10,000 people upwards to about 18,000 people. So when they came back in 65 and played Shea, he could understand that uh, he could fill a, a 56,000 seat stadium at that point. So in that first year, were the Beatles met with the same hysteria at, at every show that we think of them? I mean, I, I remember seeing the footage of Ed Sullivan and just the, uh, the excitement there. I mean, I, was, was every show like that? Absolute, complete mayhem. Mm. Also, during that year in 1964, you had a very important presidential uh, race going on between Goldwater and Lyndon Johnson. And everywhere the Beatles played, the police, a lot of police that I interviewed for the book said, we had more security in the city 
for the Beatles than we did when any of the presidential candidates came to visit. It was crazy. And, uh, you know, everywhere they went, there was tons of fans that couldn't get tickets. Bob Eubanks uh, sold out the Hollywood Bowl. This is pre-internet days Mm -hmm. in three and a half hours, all 17,000 seats. And when was the Hollywood Bowl or when were the Hollywood Bowl concerts? Yeah, so they played there twice. They played in 1964 on August 23rd, and then in 1965 they came back and they did two consecutive nights, one on the 29th of August and one on the, once on the 30th of August. And for four Liverpool kids, I can't imagine what was running through their minds uh, to stand on that historic stage in Hollywood, California, you know, something they've heard about their whole lives and to perform uh, before those uh, those crazy audiences. So let me just describe this box set. You got two volumes here. I mean, it's this huge coll- huge collection of photos and images of memorabilia, like like T-shirts and posters and contracts. I mean, there's just a lot of stuff here. It's uh, yeah, not only well written, but just visually great. Uh, you know, the photos, the tickets. How did you collect all this? I mean, how how did you start this? Well, it was a long process. I've been a, a collector of Beatles memorabilia for many years, and I actually, you know, we all kind of specialize in certain areas of collection. Um, you know, there's the records, there's the, 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 the tchotchke stuff, the little toys and memorabilia. And I really enjoyed their North American concert uh, items. There's not a lot, but there's the tickets, programs, posters, that type of thing. So I've been collecting that for a long time. And I actually had been waiting for one of the Beatle authors out there to, to put out a book on the tours because no one had really covered the subject. Maybe an author had done one of the tours or two of the tours, but not all three together. And I waited and waited and, and no one would, would ever do it. So I said, well, look, I mean, you know, I have a master's in history. I love the Beatles. Uh, I know how to research. So I'm going to tackle this project. Well, I really didn't know what I was getting myself into because mm. it was just so hard to find all the information. You know, in the Beatles toured America, a newspaper would maybe publish, you know, a paragraph or two about their visit. Of course, there'd be headlines and things like that, but not the intricate things, you know, the planning of the shows, who the promoter was, even some of the songs that they sang on tour. The photographs, trying to find those were virtually next to impossible. I, I, I dug and dug and dug and visited every archive I could. And of course, the memorabilia, you know, the tickets, the posters, the program. So putting all that together along with all the, you know, contract writers and, and performance contracts and correspondence back and forth about planning the shows all went into this. And, and all told, it was about eight years of, of my life that I, that I put this book together. Wow. Well, it's, it's really wonderful. I mean, uh, just with the photos, were, how many of them were uh, in the public domain? Not a lot. You would think, you know, had the Beatles toured in the social media age, we wouldn't have any problems with finding photos and things like that. But, uh, you know, the issue was is that a major newspaper would send uh, their photographer to the show and he would take, you know, several photos and then come back to the photo editing desk and they would pick probably one or two of them and throw the rest of them away. Mm. They had no idea of, the, of, the, of what would happen, you know, 50 years later. Sure. Uh, a lot of times I would go find an archive and, you know, it'd be in an off-site archive and they'd say, give us a week, we're going to go retrieve it. And when they'd go to retrieve it, they'd open the file and there would be a note in it that would say, you know, the Beatles photos were stolen in 1972 or they were lost. 
that was one of my goals for the book was to present photos from every stop they made in North America. And I'm really happy to say that I, I accomplished that goal. But they were scattered everywhere. I mean, there were photos in Denver that they said were from the Denver concert, but they were from New York. <laughs> the wow. shows they did in New York. So, you know, sussing all this out and, of course, identifying the proper photos to the proper cities was another task. And so uh, one of the, the keys you had to do was follow the clothing. I was just going to comment on that. So 64, they were uh, wearing the Nehru jackets, I guess, or the, or the uh, jackets with the Nehru collars, if I'm not mistaken. What happened in 65? I mean, and, and I'm still amazed that for the, for the most part, the Beatles had three American tours, 64, 65, 66. So let's jump to 65. Tell us what was going on then musically, stylistically, and basically concert-wise for the Beatles. Yeah, so music was growing up. 1965 was a huge year for music. I mean, when the Beatles came in 64 on the Ed Sullivan shows in that February of 64, I mean, the number one hit, I mean, even taking it back to December of 63, you know, the number one hit on the Billboard chart was The Singing Nun. You know, it was called Dominique. And then, in, yeah, and then in January of 64, the number one hit was a Bobby Vinton song, uh, There I Should Have Said It Again. So I Want to Hold Your Hand just took music to a new level. I mean, it seems like everybody's life went into Technicolor at that point. So when 65 rolled around, there were some great music bands, which were, of course, inspired by the Beatles performing on The Ed Sullivan Show. You know, it wasn't one person like Elvis. They realized, like, hey, we can do this, too. You know, there's four guys standing there playing music, and we can do it again. So the sales of guitars and drums and all mm. that went through the roof after Sullivan. 65, the Beatles were a little more grown up. You know, they still look like the mop tops. They were still, you know, wearing their suits on stage. But everything, even all those three tours, everything was just so primitive in terms of sound and in terms of what the Beatles could produce on stage. But of course, you also have to realize that when they came back in 65, they really birthed the idea of stadium rock, that a group could come into a stadium and fill it. So it gave rise to the idea that promoters could fill these huge venues. And so you had the rise of these large concert festivals like Woodstock, like Altamont, like Watkins Glen. And then further on, like Live Aid, they realized that they could bring rock to the masses. And the Beatles were, were able to do that. They birthed that whole idea. A lot of people have the mistaken belief that the Beatles only played stadiums after Shea for the remainder of the 65 and 66 tours, and that's just not true. They also performed at uh, arenas. The only difference is, is Brian would have them do two shows instead of one show. And actually, Shea Stadium was the only stadium the Beatles ever sold out in America during those three years. Really? Yeah, a lot of people think uh, everywhere they went, it was just complete mayhem and it was sold out. But obviously, they sold out the smaller coliseums, you know, like Portland Memorial Coliseum or the Sam Houston Coliseum down in Houston. But yeah, Shea Stadium was the only stadium the Beatles ever sold out in North America. And we have recordings of, I guess, the recordings of the Shea Stadium concert and the Hollywood Bowl came from the 1965 tour. Yeah, there was only four shows that were professionally, somewhat professionally recorded. 
uh, over the, that three-year period. Uh, Capitol Records had wanted to issue uh, a live Beatles album in 1964, so they recorded the Hollywood Bowl show with Capitol Records. But once uh, George Martin back in London received the tapes and could hear the screaming fans, he said, this is crazy. There's no way I'm going to be able to craft an album out of this because it, it's like putting a microphone on the end of a, a 747 jet engine. So luckily we had that come out in 1979 after they cleaned it up and actually we're going to have a version come out in about another month or so that was even further cleaned up. So they recorded that show, they recorded the 65 Hollywood Bowl shows and they recorded the the 65 Chase Stadium concert. So what happened to the Beatles musically in 1966 and why was this their last tour? Well, they were, uh, you know, always started as performers. You know, they didn't start on, on, on in the sterile studios of, of a recording place. They always played live music. And as early as, you know, 1957 and 1960, of course, they did their uh, Hamburg trip where they were on stage for hours and hours playing music. So in the latter tail end of 1965, they had released Rubber Soul, which was innovative. It was new, you know, really, you know, some studio tricks involved. But 1966 really changed it with the release of Revolver in August. And that was about a week before they came to America to do that final tour. And if you listen to Revolver, you know, a lot of people ask me, you know, why did the Beatles quit touring? And I say, listen to Revolver. Uh, first of all, they didn't play one song off of Revolver uh, during that final tour of America. And uh, the reason is, is they just simply couldn't reproduce those songs on stage due to the technical limitations. Now, Paul McCartney, when he tours, could, could reproduce any of those songs. So the Beatles were always about forward progress, not going backwards. They didn't want to continue singing, I want to hold your hand on stage. And that is one of the major reasons they stopped touring was mm. sound limitations, what they could reproduce on stage. And basically, as John Lennon said, it was just becoming like almost a tribal right where people would come and see the Beatles. Well, Chuck, this is a, like I said, a wonderful book. <laughs> I'm a big Beatles fan. Uh, I think it's a must have for, uh, for any Beatles fan. So um, thanks so much for talking with us. No problem. Thanks for having me on. And thank you all of you out there for listening and join us for the next LitCast. <laughs>